I remember when we were first deciding to move overseas, we had a meeting with each of our four kids who were little at the time. Like I think our youngest was one year old and uh, one of the phrases that came out in the family meeting was, we do hard things. So we're saying we are in a war-torn African country. Uh, we're being uh, ambiguous about the name of the country because there's very high persecution. And so the norm here is to kidnap, beat, and kill uh, Christians. So it's a uh, very serious thing. Regular prayer that we pray in the car as we leave in the morning is thank you God for one more day in this city because we never know when the last day will be. Why are we doing what we're doing? When I was a teenager, Bruce McAvoy was the youth pastor at Chapel Street and Jeff Frazier was the new senior high pastor at Chapel Street. There was just a deep conviction of who God is, who He is to me, and that I'm ready to go to the ends of the earth to do anything that He calls me to do. Our decision to move to this part of Africa was a statistical decision. There's dozens of unengaged people groups that no one was going to because of the persecution. Factions in this country are fighting uh, with each other. More than half a million people uh, have been internally displaced and, and have left their homes. There hasn't been good education in this country for a decade. Yeah, pe people fear for their safety. I, I remember I was, I was in a car uh, with a friend. He was new to this country and he had said, so Doug, what is the message that you think people most need to hear. And I thought about it for a while. Hope. Raise up beneath the shade of the Georgia pine. That's home, you know. Sweet tea, pecan pine, oh may wine. Where the fishes grow. And my house is not much to talk about. The title, Hope School, was actually the idea of a Muslim business guy in the community who saw that we were doing Hope Camps, Hope Clubs, and parent trainings to teach resiliency skills for families. And he said, Doug, you have Hope Camps, you have Hope Clubs, you should have Hope School. He said, I have an 86,000 square foot facility that you can use rent-free this message of hope is what our community needs. We started Hope School this past September with 120 students, which by October was 180 students. We have about 20% of the building set up with classrooms. About 80% of the building still needs development. There's so much that can be done, but like we don't have kitchens, we don't have refrigerators or microwaves, like there's, so there's certain pieces, there's not things for the kids to play with at recess. The mission is we want to bring hope 
and healing to traumatized families. And ultimately, we want them to develop a relationship with Jesus and follow Jesus. We believe each child has a unique God-given identity and special calling. We teach through different character traits and each of those character traits line up with the fruit of the Spirit. Education so lines up with the Christian worldview that we can ask whatever question we want, uh, we can share whatever doubt we want, and that the answers will line up with our faith. And we believe if in this culture we develop a generation that learns to think critically, this is going to cause a seismic shift in how they approach who God is. As we do hard things, we kind of feel weak, but in that, God shows himself to be strong. And in doing hard things, we have experienced way more joy, way more of a sense of who God is and connection with him. This has been our hardest year ever. It's also been our most fulfilling, joyous year of significance. Daddy sang bass, Mama sang tenor, me and little brother joined right in. Singing seems to help a troubled soul. One of these days and it won't be long, always join the song. I'm going to join the family circle at the throne. Oh, the circle won't be broken. Yeah, halfway around the world, families are pretty much the same still, aren't they? You know, Doug and Carrie growing up in, and by the way, one of the great challenges and great privileges for, for me and for us is to tell you these stories. The challenge in this case is to tell you in a way that doesn't compromise their safety. So we're actually using pseudonyms, and I'm going to tell you the nation that they're working in because it would, would compromise them and the workers they work with. But what an opportunity. Grow, grew up in this community, part of the youth ministry in this church. And many of us say, God, I'll go wherever you, I'll do whatever you want with me. Just send me wherever you want, right? But secretly we have this list like, please not here, you know. And God actually did send them, and they actually went. And I love what he said, doing hard things, you experience the joy and the, and the grace and the power of God in ways you don't when you live a, a comfortable life. And they felt the call of God to go and serve in a dangerous place with their whole family. And they weren't planning to build a school, but a Muslim man, this is 99% Muslim country they're serving in, war-torn country, said, I'm so compelled by what you're doing, I want to give you an 86,000 square foot facility that I own. Because we need this message of hope. And Hope School is based on the principles of the gospel, even though it's not named overtly Christian. They're bringing hope, education, trauma-informed uh, training and uh, therapy and, and help to these children in this horrible part of the world. And, and they can house 150 to 200 right now. For half a million dollars, they could rehab the entire facility and house 1,500 students. All they need is the resources to do it. So that's our goal. Uh, over the next several weeks of Advent, many of you are already faithful givers uh, here at Chapel Street. We're thankful for your generosity. If you're new, if you're here visiting to watch a dedication, or if you're new this week, we don't want you to feel any pressure to give. We're just glad you're here to worship. For those of you that call this your spiritual home and family, your regular contributions are making a difference. And should God move in your heart to give additionally, all you have to do is write, serve the world in the notation of your check, or um, indicate that online, all the money for Serve the World from this week until Christmas Eve goes directly to this project. And we're praying that God would help them cross the finish line to rehab the, the facility 
to house a thousand students because there are over a million displaced children in this country in desperate need of education and hope. And we could help make that happen. What an opportunity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Doug and Carrie and their family. We pray your protection over them. But more than just their physical protection, we pray for the increase of their ministry. And though many of us will never meet them or never visit that country, they're our brothers and sisters. And we're a part of what they're doing. And that's what you do. You bring your people together that we could make a greater impact through you together than we ever could alone. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless these efforts and that you would bring transformation to a country through a school based on the principles of your gospel. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today, as I said, is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is, uh, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which is the word for arrival. And if you're unfamiliar with this, Christians celebrate the Advent season. Not, it's different than the cultural Christmas season, which, according to Starbucks, begins in late August. But for us, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, Advent is that uh, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus, not just his arrival once upon a time, you know, baby Jesus in the manger looking backward. That's part of Christmas. But Advent is really, we live between two arrivals. His first arrival as a humble child, and his second arrival when he will come again in power and glory. We live between the advents right now, looking back in awe and wonder, looking forward in hope and expectation and faith. And, and, and historically, the advent season for Christians is a time of preparation where we focus on scripture. We spend more time in prayer and reading the word of God. And so our series is meant to help us prepare ourselves uh, for the advent season. And we're gonna do that by a series we're calling The Spirit of Christmas. Now, I know what you're thinking. The spirit of Christmas, it's different than the Christmas spirit. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the songs that come on and they started. By the way, if you put your lights up this weekend, good for you. You did it properly. It's in the Bible. No, it's only I'm kidding. Right? If you waited. We, we have the Christmas spirit of our culture where we think of it nostalgia and, we, and, and all the, the, you know, the cultural trappings of the season. The spirit of Christmas is actually meaning the spirit of Christmas. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the work of God by his Spirit in the Christmas story. Maybe you might think of the, we know about the Son, because he's the, he's the hero of the story, right? Baby Jesus in the manger. We know about God the Father, but very often I think we don't, we don't think much about the Holy Spirit at all, certainly at the Christmas time season. But this series is focused on the work of God in, by his Spirit in the story of Christmas. Maybe the behind-the-scenes unsung hero of a story, if you will. And there's lots of places we could go to look at this because the Christmas story does not begin in Bethlehem. It does not begin in Matthew chapter 1. It begins way, way back in the Old Testament. We're going back to the prophet Isaiah, 750 years before the birth of Jesus. We're going to look at one particular prophecy this morning, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, 
And the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. More than any other Old Testament prophet, Isaiah gives us these rich images and metaphors, uh, pictures of who the Messiah is and what he's going to be like. As I said, Isaiah lived more than 700 years before Jesus. He, his, his prophetic career, if you will, spanned over 60 years, and it happened during what's called the divided kingdom. If you know some Old Testament history, you might remember this. Israel, as a nation, was divided into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. It's a little bit confusing, but they were divided. The northern kingdom, Israel, had already been captured uh, and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. So Assyria now is threatening the southern kingdom, Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. All that's left of God's people, Israel, as a nation, is the the, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And they're threatened by Assyria in the north. And they're, they're under oppression. They're fearful. And what's happening is the people of God are thinking, maybe we could appeal to Egypt in the south, who was the rival of the Assyrian Empire, for our help. Maybe Egypt would come to our aid if we make an alliance with them. So Isaiah's primary message is don't put your trust in any human empire. Don't put your hope in the Egyptians or any other nation. Put your hope and your trust in God to rescue you. Turn back to him. Learn the lesson of your northern brothers and sisters who rebelled against God and paid for it. Trust him. And not surprisingly, they don't learn the lesson and it doesn't go all that well for them. And so Isaiah chapter 10 is, this, uh, is the story of how of God's judgment on his people Judah and on the Assyrian Empire. Interestingly, God's going to use the Assyrians as an instrument of his judgment on his own people, and he's going to judge the Assyrians because they also are a wicked nation. Look at how chapter 10 closes in verses 33 through 34. See if you can pick up the metaphor in this passage here that, that, that the prophet is using. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. What's the image? What's the metaphor he's using? Anybody get it? I know normally you just stare forward at me until the service is over, right? What's he, it's chopping down trees, right? Lopping the boughs, hewing down the, the mighty ones. The image of, of hold on, that's too soon. Wait, go back. You gave it away. Right? <laughs> so, so, so the image here is that the, the, the great proud forests of Assyri- the Assyrian Empire and of God's own people, the cedars of Lebanon, are going to, because of their arrogance and their pride and their rebellion, are going to be cut down. And chapter 10 ends with this sort of image of a desolate landscape. Now you can put it up there. Right, there we go. Of this, these stumps reduced to nothing. Just a field of dead stumps. Anybody ever been to the Redwoods? Seen the Redwood Forest? Anybody been there? Seen the great sequoias? They're stunning, aren't they? It's, and you think about what it was like 200 years ago. But can you imagine those great Redwood Forests looking like this? Just all of it gone? That's the image here in the end of chapter 10. 
that the, 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 what you think is powerful on earth is nothing compared to the power of God. And he will judge the peoples of the earth for their rebellion, including his own people. It's tragic. It's this image of desolation, emptiness, lifeless, or so it seems. That's how chapter 10 ends. And I want to call this the story of the stump. I asked a friend of mine who owns a landscape company, can I have a stump as an object lesson? I thought like, it would be like a tree stump, and he, he gave me a pulpit. This, is the, this thing's like 500-pound piece of tree. So anyway, we might just keep this here. If you're wondering, why is there a tree on there? That's why. What, what could grow from this stump? What, could, what life could come out of this dead stump? Nothing, nothing. It's just a piece of wood. It's eventually going to dry and rot. Might be good for burning in your fireplace. But nothing could come from this. Let's so we think. But this is the story of the stump. In fact, we could make the case that we are people of the stump. You see, the strange imagery from the Old Testament prophet thousands of years ago is actually part of a grander story. I don't know if you know this. There's lots of trees in the Bible. Trees are an important metaphor in the Bible. Remember the Garden of Eden? There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Psalm 1, we're told that we, we as God's people are to be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields our fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. We see uh, the God's people referred to as the oaks of righteousness and the great cedars of Lebanon. And then we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when God brings his people into the promised land, there's trees galore, olive trees and fig trees and fr- fruit trees, symbols of blessing. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, we come back to another garden with a river of life flowing through it. And what's there? A tree, the tree of life, whose leaves are the healing of the nations. Well, you could say we live between the trees in a way. And God's people, by, by, by their faithfulness and obedience to him, are meant to be like a great tree. Like a great, we'll see the picture of a big tree here. I, I picked that one off the internet because I think it's cool. I don't know if that's what God had in mind, but I like it. A great, massive tree, flowering, a symbol of God's blessing for the world. But they blew it. They rebelled, they resisted, they rejected, they wanted to go their own way, and they end up like a dead stump. That's how chapter 10 ends. And then you have to have that in your view as you come to chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read it again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. From this seemingly dead stump comes new life. And stumps are stubborn, aren't they? Ever try to remove a stump? It's not easy. When we went to Ecuador for the first time, I led a high school group there many, many years ago. We dug out these massive eucalyptus stumps to make room for the buses to come up the road. It was a week-long effort, and we pulled the axle off one of the Isuzu troopers trying to pull a stump out of the ground. I mean, stumps are dug in and hard to remove. You ever try to remove a weed tree? You think you got it right, and the next year what happens? There's more. I have this one. I want God to strike down the stump in my backyard because it will not, it will not die. So what, the point is, what appears to be dead on the surface, God is doing something that you don't always see, bringing new life. Not just a little life, but full life. And this brings us to the hope of the branch. From the story of the stump to the hope of the branch, the spirit is at work. Now, it's a, it's a stump, a, a shoot of Jesse. Anybody know who Jesse is? 
Jesse is King David's father. David, Israel's greatest king. David of Goliath fame, Israel's greatest king, right? It's a, it's a descendant of that line, a branch from that stump, from the line of David. Now, the line of David is all but gone. It's, it is 600 years the royal authority of David's line has been silent and gone when Jesus comes on the scene. It really does appear to be a dead stump, but God is not done. Let's look at verse, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And see the character of this branch and this shoot. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it's the spirit of the Lord. There's there's seven marks of the spirit here. And then seven is the number uh, of fullness and completion in the Bible. So we're getting a picture here that this branch, this shoot off this dead stump, is full of life by the Spirit. The Spirit rests on him in a profound way, characterized by these seven things. It's not a false spirit, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord. And it's characterized by wisdom and understanding. Wisdom. When, when the Bible talks about wisdom, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Here's the point. God's wisdom is not supposed to always make sense to the world. Sometimes the wisdom of God looks like foolishness. Let me give you an example. In, in, in church leadership circles, we will plan and pray about the future. Where do we think God wants us to be in three years, in five years, in ten years? And we'll throw stuff up on a whiteboard and pray about it, and then we'll back up and say, well, how are we going to get there? Maybe you do this sort of thing in your business. It's a good thing to do. Let's imagine for a minute that you had a life coach, a planning coach, come in for your own life, and they said, well, what are your goals? And you said, my main goal is that 2,000 years from now, everyone on the planet would know my name. (laughs) That's pretty lofty. And you said, not only that, but I want a quarter of the world's population to profess to follow me. And not only that, but I want my teaching and my words to be the most profound, influential body of work in human history. We might want to get you counseling for your narcissism, but if you said that, that was your goal, and we say, okay, well, let's back up and say, how is this going to be accomplished? How are we going to get this done? And what if your, your consultant, your expert said, here's the plan. You need to be born in poverty in an out-of-the-way village under Roman occupation. You need to spend the bulk of your adult life far away from any center of economic power, political influence, or, or social status. And just when you come on the scene and start to hit your stride as an adult, you should die in shame a criminal's death. That's how we get that done. What would you say? Fired, right? You say, that's crazy. That will never work. But that's the gospel. The wisdom of God is not intended to make sense according to the world's view of what, how things work. So when we read that the spirit of wisdom rests on him, it means a wisdom that's different. And understanding. And counsel. What are we told in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? He is wonderful counselor. And might. He is mighty God. By the spirit. And knowledge and fear of the Lord. The sevenfold description Fear, by the way, not mean afraid of, but a sense of awe and wonder. 
And you see that in the gospel accounts of Jesus. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. He goes on to describe how this will look. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That phrase in verse 3, not judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear. That's interesting to me. How do you know what's true and what you can trust in the world today? How many of you have ever read something on Facebook or heard something on cable news and thought, whoa, is that real? And you thought it was true and you shared it with somebody else and you found out later that was completely false. Anybody? Is it just me? Am I the only fool in here? You're not being honest. We're not listening. One of the two, right? People are citing scientific studies, polling data, on opposite sides of an issue that both seem compelling, but they're contradictory. How do you know? How how do we make judgments? All we have to go on as human beings is what we see and what we hear. And we're living in a culture and a time in human history where it's increasingly difficult to know, well, can I trust what I see and hear? How do I know? Here's the point that Isaiah is making. The Messiah, the branch from the stump of Jesse, doesn't need to see things and hear things. He already knows. John chapter 2, verse 25 tells us he did not need to be told what's in the heart of any person because he already knows what's in your heart and mind. He knows a word before you speak it, a thought before you think it. He knows all things. He needs no external evidence to decide and to judge. He is justice. He is knowledge. He is counsel in himself. That's what Isaiah is telling us. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. The world will always look at Christianity to one degree or another like it's silly. Not everyone always, but there will always be those in the world who look at the claims of Christians and think, you don't really believe that, do you? I mean, you're not going to move your family to Africa based on those claims, are you? That's crazy. That's foolishness. No, that's wisdom, and that's truth. Look at verses 6 through 9 of Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, and the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. People always quote that, right? Like in sporting events with some rookie quarterback. A little child shall lead them, taking it terribly out of context. It's not what it means at all, right? And the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Let's stop there. How many of you moms and dads who just dedicated your children a few moments ago would say, you know what a good idea is? Let my child play by a cobra's hole. (laughs) What is he talking about? They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is crazy, wild imagery. You know how YouTube learns like what what you watch? So if you, if you were to look at my YouTube feed, you'd see like sports, uh, sports uh, history and uh, animals attacking humans. 
<laughs> For whatever reason, I'm fascinated by these, by these videos of animals attacking, right? Have you seen these? Like people that go, I saw this one, they're in Yellowstone National Park and this family gets out of their SUV. Look kids, bison, and they're coming up the road. And the whole family's out, I'm like, what are you doing? There's like 2,000 pound buffaloes walking up the road and they startled it with pictures and so the bison rams their car and knocks it, into the, it off the side of the road. I'm, and I'm, part of me is like, I'm glad they're okay, but you're idiots. You shouldn't be doing that, Right? <laughs> And so I see these people grabbing snakes in the wild by the back of the... I mean, what are you doing? We think that's nuts. Like Steve Irwin, the crocodile man. Remember, he died. And I, I don't want to speak of the dead, but he kind of he asked for it. Right? I mean, I mean, people are grabbing wild animals by the tail and going out and it's nuts. Isaiah is saying, when Messiah comes, when the branch comes, all this... All, here's his point. All the things which terrify us, or ought to, which seem dangerous in the world, It'll be very different. We live in a broken world. And much of the brokenness we cause, our own sin, our own injustice that we, we do to each other, but some of it just is a world that's gone wrong. Disease, death, famine, disaster. When the righteous branch comes in the second advent, it's going to be very different. All those things which terrify you will be gone. There'll be shalom. There'll be peace. There'll be harmony in a way that you can hardly comprehend. It almost doesn't make sense now, is his point. We live in a fearful world now. We will not when he returns and restores all things when he comes. G.K. Chesterton said that the reason the animal, wild animals snarl and growl at you is because they know you have a quarrel with their maker. We've sinned. We've gone wrong. We need a savior to put things right. Romans chapter eight, Paul tells us the whole creation groans in expectation of being set right. Nature knows it's not right and we see it. Red and tooth and claw, as the poets tell us. I think perhaps outside the Bible, one of the writers, authors that puts this most profoundly in story, can you guess? Yes, you're right, C.S. Lewis. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, maybe you, if you've not, uh, and by the way, moms and dads, you little ones, start early, start reading the Chronicles now. You remember the poem that Mr. Beaver, he cites the prophecy of Aslan to the Pevensey children, Edmund and Peter and Lucy and Susan, when they're in Mr. Beaver's house, and he cites the prophecy, meaning Aslan, if you don't know, Aslan's the, if you don't know, like, where have you been? But Aslan is the lion, and he's the Christ figure, and there's this prophecy that when he comes to Narnia, he's going to restore, because it's always winter, never Christmas. Could anything be worse than that? That's like living in Illinois, right? <laughs> it stays forever. It's a, it's a land under a curse, an evil curse is the point. And when, the, when Aslan comes, the curse will be reversed. Here's the prophecy. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we'll have spring again. Isaiah, Lewis is echoing Isaiah here. I know it looks desolate and dead and like there's a curse on the land. I know life is hard and full of injustice and pain that you see out in the world and you experience personally. I know sometimes it feels like it's all just a bunch of dead stumps, but God is not done. There will come a shoot from what appears dead, full of life and by the Spirit. And this branch will grow and flourish and bring about a healing to the world that you can scarcely comprehend now. That's what he's telling us. 
there's another story, part of the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when the children hear the name Aslan for the first time. They don't know who he is. They never heard of him. They first time in Narnia. And here's what we, we read. Lewis writes, And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment Be- Mr. Beavers had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you do not understand, but in the dream it feels that if it, as if it has enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too beautiful to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get back into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each of the children felt something leap in their heart. I think in a way what Isaiah is doing here is giving us this prophecy of the branch so that we might have something leap in our heart. Oh, I want that. I long for that. I hope for that. Inside of every human being and in all of human history is this longing, even though we don't always name it this way, for a king to come who will set it right. If you read through the stories, the great mythologies and stories, a conquering hero, a king to return, the, across cultures, Norse mythology, uh, Far Eastern mythology, Greek mythology, there's always this, this, the God person, the king, the divine ruler will come and conquer evil and restore things. And this is deep in us. And so every, year, every election cycle, politicians play off this longing, don't they? Making promises they could never keep or fulfill. But it's deep down in us. And Isaiah is telling us where that comes from and the only one who will fulfill it. This brings us to the identity of the king. The identity of the king. Because the story of the gospel is that our fundamental problem, friends, is not educational. It's not institutional. It's not financial. It's not social. It's relational. All great stories have a a picture of what life ought to be like, the great tree. They have an explanation of how it went wrong, the great tragedy. And then they have a picture of what's going to set it right. You know what a catastrophe is, right? Like a, a tragic, surprising turn for the bad. Sometimes when you read a story or watch one, watch a great movie, you can feel it coming, can't you? In the storyline, oh no, this is gonna end up bad. I know how this is gonna go. You feel that coming. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien coined a phrase called the U-catastrophe. E-U meaning good catastrophe. The good catastrophe? What they meant is the sudden surprising turn for the good that you didn't see coming. That's the gospel. The cross of Christ, the death of the Son of God at the hands of sinful men is the sudden surprising turn for the good? That God would use that to bring restoration and forgiveness and healing to those who will trust him? Yes. And here in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, he's telling us, out of the stump of Jesse, the line of David, and that's true through Mary's line, this Messiah will come. Now look at for a minute at verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1 and verse 10. And let's try to make sense of this. I want you to notice something here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this means... Jesse, David, they're the, they're the source, and a branch is going to grow off of that. And we know that's true. Genealogically, Jesus is born of the house and line of David through Mary, his biological mother. But now look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse 
who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Do you see a problem here? Anybody tracking? What's the issue? How can somebody be the root and the shoot? How can one person be both the source of something and a descendant of something? That same thing. How does that work? How can he be a shoot off the stump and the roots from which the stump grows? It doesn't make sense. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the source of all of us, the creator of all that exists. Colossians 1 tells us that he's the firstborn of all creation. He's preeminent over all things. He's before all things. And yet, he also is the shoot of the stump of Jesse because he's fully human. Utterly unique is the point in this strange prophecy. He came as a child, humble and meek. He will come again in power and glory to judge and to reign and to rule. As we wrap up here, let's look at Revelation verses 19, chapter 19, verse 11 through 15. And, and you'll see echoes of, of Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5 in here. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. Remember that? What is Jesus called in Isaiah? His name shall be Faithfulness, shall be the belt upon his loins. And in righteousness he should judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. We live between the Advents, friends. Jesus comes as a tender shoot, baby in a manger. He will return in power and glory and justice and might. These ancient people of Israel's day were living in a time of insecurity, fear, uncertainty, and oppression. In some ways, not all that different from what it's like to live today. Desperate for a word of hope because they look around and what they had placed their trust in is a reduced to dead stumps. And God says, I'm not done. I can bring life from that which you think is dead. I'm gonna do that. From the seemingly dead stump to the unlikely branch of life. I don't know what your life is like. I know that the, the Advent and Christmas season, for many of us, is, is full of joy, and we get family together again. We see people we haven't seen in a long time, and we love the whole nostalgia and the spirit of the season, and that's wonderful. But I also know that for more than a few of you, it's a hard time. It's a time where you feel acutely the losses of your life. You, you miss being with people that you can no longer be with because you're estranged or they've passed. You feel the pain of broken relationships. So this season can both remind, remind us of both things, right? The dead stump and the new life of a branch. As we're launching into this series called The Spirit of Christmas, we begin here that the Spirit of God is working even when all seems lost, even when everything seems dead. The Spirit of God is bringing about life that only he can do. Not a little bit of life, but a branch full of life that will grow into a great tree which will be for the healing of the nations. And the invitation to you and to me this Advent season is first a reminder that you live between the Advents. We look back and on wonder. We look forward in hope and faith. And if you feel like the ancient Israelites felt, like where do I turn? Where is God in this? The Spirit of God is moving. 
even in your own heart, to bring all of us to repentance, to faith, and to trust in him. Let's stand together for closing prayer. If you're here this morning and, and you'd like someone to pray with you, I prayed with a man just before the service started. Maybe you're here and you're, you're carrying a burden that you, is feeling heavy to you and you want someone to pray with you. We invite you to the glass room at the close of the service. I'd love to pray with you. I'm going to close with the words from the Book of Common Prayer, the great Advent prayer, which reminds us where we live as his followers. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came among us in great humility, that on the last day, when he comes again in glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who reigns and lives with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. And go in peace.